podcast. On this podcast, we'll be focusing on the Weird War Tales comic book series published by DC Comics from 1971 to 1983. I am Max. I am Rich. And on this episode, we'll be taking a look at Weird War Tales number 26. But first, Rich has some retroactive history for you. I've talked a couple of times about the World War II service of my family. One grandfather was involved with the Manhattan Project. One great uncle flew two cruises flying TBM Avengers off the USS Enterprise. While another great uncle, Bill Dameworth, flew 32 missions in a B-17 flying fortress over Europe. I'm proud to announce my genealogist mother has recently discovered the service history of Bill's brother, electrician's mate first class Robert Dameworth. The rumors were known, but nothing concrete had been found until last month. He served in the Navy aboard LST-49. LST stands for Landing Ship Tank, or derisively, Large Slow Target, and is a flat-bottomed ship that would beach itself ashore and unload its cargo that way. Not a horribly glamorous job, but obviously a vital one. That being said, as a member of LST-49, he found himself unloading cargo on Omaha Beach on June 6, 1944, and later participated in the invasions of southern France and Okinawa. Wow. He died in 2007 and is interred in the Fort Sam Houston National Cemetery in Texas. Salute, sir. Intel Report. Two Moons, published by Image Comics. Written by John Arcudi, art by Valiero Gian Giordano. Two collections have been published, which is how I've been getting these. In the Iron Noose collection, Two Moons, aka Virgil Morris, is a young Pawnee uh, Indian fighting on the Western Theater for the Union during the Civil War. When he is suddenly confronted with his shamanic roots, he discovers horrors far worse than combat as the ghosts of his past reveal the monstrous evil around him. Volume 2, Ghost War. Decades after the Civil War, the Pawnee Nation has been almost totally confined to a reservation in Oklahoma. But shaman Two Moons, once again in Kansas, is seeking the help of Irish immigrant Dr. Francis Shaw. The ghosts of the indigenous men and women killed in the Indian Wars will not rest in the conflict is far from over. Yeah, I think uh, my shamanic roots are starting to show. So uh, we're going to take a little break for a podcast (laughs) promo here. And while I take care of that problem, we'll play that. We'll be right back. And then we'll take a look at the issue at hand. It was the dawn of the third age of podcasting, 30 years after the series had launched. The Babylon podcast was a dream given form. Its goal, to discuss the place where humans and aliens could work out their differences peacefully. It's a port of call, home away from home for established fans, newbies, John, Blaine, and guests. Humans and aliens wrapped in 2,500,000 tons of spinning metal, all alone in the night. It could be a dangerous place. Wait, what? But it's our last, best hope for peace. This is the story of the last of the Babylon stations. The year is 2024. The name of the podcast is Babylon 5, 30 Years Later. And we are back. So as I said at the top, we are taking a look at Weird War Tales number 26. And as is SOP here on the show, Rich will hit you 
with the cover detail. Art by Louise Dominguez. The mystery and madness is still yours for 20 cents. As a large, full orange moon shines down on a war-ravaged landscape, a skeletal World War I French poilu in a tattered uniform prepares to bayonet a German soldier that's cowering on the ground. Cover date, June 1974. Date of release, March 26th, 1974. Killjoy. No pickle helmets in 1916. We find out the year in the first story in the comic. Also, it appears the Poilu is holding a USM 1903 Springfield rifle. It certainly isn't a Lebel Model 1886 rifle that France used throughout the war. But the bayonet with the loop does appear to be right. So who knows? Maybe it's just me. CNC. Usually the dead guy on the cover causing trouble is an enemy. This gives you a reminiscent taste of the Avenging Grave from Weird War Tales 8 when skeletal French soldiers rose from Bayonet Trench to get their vengeance on World War II Germans. I've said this before, how many times were skeletons in uniform found in no man's land during the war? This is a chilling cover. You almost feel bad for Fritz. Almost. So (laughs) we have a silent cover here, as I often mention, with a full bleed image, which I dig when they go silent to let the image either letterbox or full bleed, you know, pick one of them. It's, it's kind of dramatic. I like it. It creates an atmosphere of dread and I'm in looking at this cover. The use of color here, as I often obsess about, is also fantastic from the simple orange moon to the flat blue night sky. It makes the foreground pop that much more. And even the choice of a cold light blue color for the bodies packed into the letters of the logo is great here. Like you said, chilling. It adds to that sense of cold in a way, just visually. But the only thing I'd change would be the sunburst around the still only 20 cents button. I get it, marketing and all, but it really adds a slightly discordant note to an otherwise uniformly creepy cover. So it's a good one. So with that great cover out of the way, we're going to dive into the first story of the issue. The Survivor. Seven pages, script by John Albano, art by Alfredo Alcala. So yes, expectations are high. Synopsis, the splash page is the same scene as the cover, only with a person, not a skeleton. That happens a lot in this title, doesn't it? October 1916, while on patrol, three French soldiers watch a fourth, Deauville, give his special treatment to a German soldier by mercilessly bayonetting him. Back at their lines, Lieutenant Lecatier gives his report to his commanding officer. Afterwards, Lecatier admits that his men are starting to think that Deauville is some type of demon, but with his insane laugh and the way he isolates himself from everyone else in the regiment, the commander dismisses the thought. Besides, as long as Deauville is destroying the enemy, he has no complaints. Ordered to attack, the French troops run into heavy enemy opposition. Pinned down by a machine gun nest, Deauville asks Corporal Dupree if he wanted him to attend to those noisy fellows over there. Permission is quickly granted, and Deauville giggles as he heads towards German lines. He hates fighting from a distance, preferring to kill with his bayonet. A burst of fire appears to catch Deauville across the chest and he goes down, but he gets up and charges right into the nest's line of fire. Still giggling, he bayonets the entire crew. The Frenchmen are in awe. It was impossible that any human could have survived that assault. But they follow Deauville and attack. And after several hours of bloody fighting, the Germans are retreating. 
Seeing a lone German soldier running away, the corporal lines up his rifle for an easy kill, but Doville suddenly bumps him and ruins the shot. Only wounded, the German escapes. The corporal curses Doville out, who only chuckles. Later, Lacatier reports on unit losses from the battle to the commander. One man is missing. Doville. He'd performed a miracle in battle, then disappeared. It was almost as if he had some special purpose to join the unit, then deserted. And Doville seemed to deliberately ruin Corporal Dupree's shot at an enemy soldier. The commander found that doubtful, though. Why would Doville want an enemy soldier to continue living far away at the first aid station of the 16th Bavarian Reserve Infantry Regiment? A doctor treats the wounded German and remarks it was a good thing that Frenchie was such a poor marksman. Yes, indeed, Corporal Hitler. You were very lucky indeed. Killjoy, history minute. Gefreiter Adolf Hitler did belong to the 16th Bavarian Reserve Infantry Regiment, a.k.a. the List Austria Regiment. Every photo of him from the war I've ever seen, he's sporting a huge handlebar mustache, not clean-shaven as he's portrayed at the end of the story. An infantryman during the First Battle of Ypres, he was later reassigned as a messenger. He was awarded the Iron Cross first and second class for bravery during the war and was wounded by British shell fire during the Battle of the Somme in October of 1916. So the date in the story is right, but the opponent and method of wound are wrong. It was also mustard gas in 1918, which is largely credited as the reason Hitler never used chemical weapons during World War II. There's a story that's been largely debunked that British soldier Henry Tandy allegedly had wounded Adolf Hitler in his sights on September 28th, 1918, but chose not to shoot. This may be the root inspiration for the story, which is yet another reason the British, not the French, should have been portrayed here. But for the sake of argument, if you insist on using the French for the story, their big fight in October 1916 was retaking Fort Douaumont, butchered that, part of the Battle of Verdun, cough, cough, bayonet trench, cough, cough. Nice. And I think uh, maybe the use of the French here, I, I I just realized this going through listening to your synopsis, was so they could give our mysterious French torturer, that particular last name, <laughs> because Mr. DeVille <laughs> was, was a sadistic bastard who liked to bayonet people. So my wow, see, that's yeah. a good catch, actually. That yeah, very, I mean, <laughs> it just hit me right now. And we read that whole story and I'm like, Deauville, wouldn't that be more like DeVille? And I'm like, oh my God. <laughs> So it points to you because I'm the one that wrote the freaking script and I never caught it. So. <laughs> yeah. So I really liked this one. I, I was actually, to, to add some context to that comment I just made, I was actually fully caught up in the shifting narrative from thinking this would be just another story about an overly cruel soldier getting his just desserts in the end, which we've seen, to realizing that this was likely the devil himself mixing with the troops and then being genuinely surprised by the twist at the end with our clean shaven uh was it corporal hitler yep. yeah our clean shaven corporal there so when deville or doville ruined that shot i just thought while i was reading the story that he wanted to kill that kid that clean shaven kid up close and the would-be victim would turn out to be a werewolf or something. I don't know, you know? So I, I, it fit what Deauville was doing throughout the story. You know, I thought, like, he's like, oh, I'll take care of him up close. So the writing worked like a charm for me. The art is also excellent. 
Even if Alcala sticks to a more or less rigid six-panel grid throughout, the storytelling is perfectly solid, and Alcala's mastery of facial expression and character acting is on full display throughout the story. The soldiers' bodies getting tossed around by explosions at the top of page three is great. The faces on page four, panel three, and the corpses on page five, panel one, along with the German doctor's smug expression in the final panel are just some examples of what I'm talking about. Excellent start to the issue. This is one of those stories I remembered from reading it the first time. Holy what if. Once again, I'll call a carries the day. I love the detail he puts into the French dugouts on page two, panel two, and five, especially the rats in the foreground on panel two. On page three, panel four, you get a good close-up look of DeVoe's face. Color it red, and that's Satan, man. (laughs) Yeah, just still stunning that that only just occurred to us now. I mean, we knew (laughs) that it was supposed to be the devil, but the whole pun with the name just, I am... I am ashamed of myself. So with that- Boy, More than you need me, because that's your wheelhouse. Yeah, exactly. Like that's a particular demerit for me. <laughs> Indeed, <laughs> my God. For shame, father. For shame. Shame. <laughs> so the second story in the issue here to cruise on past my shame is titled Jump Into Hell. It's seven pages long. Script is by Jack Olek. Art is by, what's the name again? Alfredo Alcala. Look at that. Maybe I'll get it straight this time. Okay, so (laughs) yes. Synopsis for Jump Into Hell goes a little something like this. January 6th, 1945. A plane load of paratroopers jumps over the German village of Mannheim with orders to hold the village. There's a heavy ground fog when they land, but all the men are quickly accounted for. In fact, they're one man over. A lost captain from the 1st Infantry finds them and wants directions back to Allied lines. Maybe he's telling the truth, and maybe he isn't. The lieutenant leading the mission can't take the chance of sending the captain on his way. The captain understands, and as they head to Mannheim, the LT would later remember how otherworldly it all felt. The fog. The silence. They soon found out what they believed to be Mannheim, although it's not where it's supposed to be on the map. There's no sign of life as they go through the town either. Something is very wrong. Suddenly, a crowd of villagers brandishing scythes and pitchforks appears, wearing clothes 500 years out of date. They attack, ignoring the lieutenant's orders to stop. The Americans open fire, but their rounds have no effect, and they're quickly overwhelmed when hand-to-hand combat breaks out. The men of the 102nd taste terror when they learn that they were to be sacrificed at midnight. Pleased that they are prisoners of war fall on deaf ears as they are taken to the place of sacrifice. Chained in the basement of a church, the Americans desperately try to figure out a way to escape, but all too soon, the bells of the church ring 12. A group of villagers appear, draped in robes. Their leader points a knife at the captain and orders him to be placed on the altar. Lord of darkness, our master, we offer you a sacrifice. In the blood of this mortal, we renew our faith in you. They're Satan worshippers. As they prepare to plunge the dagger into the captain's heart by unzipping his jacket, there's a flash of white hot fire on the altar that bowls the villagers over, and an ear-splitting roar louder than any thunder has a right to be. In an instant, the town, the people, even the Americans' chains vanish. 
Nothing makes sense, but the mission is a washout. They return to their lines, and the LT gives his report to command, with the captain accompanying. It goes without saying, the colonel doesn't buy his story. Only the LT's sterling record keeps him out of trouble. Both of them knew the local legend about a nearby town of devil worshippers that had existed hundreds of years ago, until it was cursed by a man of God. Germelshausen? Germelshausen. Germelshausen. <laughs> we'll call it that. Vanished into hell. So Germelshausen was the name of that town, but it reappears once a century. Anyone who enters it is never seen again unless they are also protected by a man of God. What kind of fool do you take me for, the colonel bellows? Do you still insist you've been hobnobbing with devil worshippers? Words fail the LT, and the two men are dismissed. They discuss the story amongst themselves outside. It had happened. They had stumbled into hell, but the captain, as he unzips his jacket, asks the lieutenant why he hadn't told the colonel the whole story. I don't think I'll ever tell anyone the whole story, he replied. Who would believe it? Underneath the captain's jacket, a crucifix hangs from around his neck, and another is pinned to his collar. The captain is a chaplain. Ding, ding, ding. Illjoy. And history minute. One C-47 load of paratroopers is sent to capture a village. The most a Skytrade can carry is 28 men. I only saw a max of 10 men in this story, usually only five. They might hold a building, but not a village. Also on page five, panel one, the LT is amazed his platoon was so easily captured. The platoon is 38 men, as already said. Too many for one plane. The ranks of the officers' helmets are way too big, and why are they all dressed in blue? This is the Army, not the Navy. In addition, the number on the narrator's helmet, 102, nice touch, is only used at jump school, not in combat, and I can't find any reference to any airborne unit called the 102nd. Other than that, the legend of Germelshausen comes from an 1860 story by Friedrich Gerstocker about a cursed village that sinks into the earth and is allowed to reappear one day a century. The protagonist happens to be crossing the area at the time and encounters and falls in love with a woman that lives there. He escapes before being trapped there himself, but is forever separated from his love. It's an old German motif done by several authors and is widely believed to be the inspiration to the classic musical Brigadoon although its writer, Alan J. Lerner, denied it. I haven't seen it, but may have to now. Comments and commendations. I like page three, panel three of the troops warily advancing on the village, all spread out. The lighting on the village itself is eerie. But there were so many little gaffes by Oleg and Alcala that dragged it down. There were even times I wonder if Alcala actually did both stories. Maybe the colors deserve some of the blame as well. I have to admit, I started liking the story more after investigating Gerbilshausen. Yeah, this one started out well for me, but then ended up irritating the heck out of me. Of course, all the Killjoy stuff that you just mentioned went more or less over my head. It was the narrative that kind of ticked me off here. <laughs> to be fair, the story started off perfectly well, and I was even charmed by the return of the soldiers pass through the mist and end up back in time trope. I was beginning to miss that one. The confusion of the soldiers, the assault by the villagers that looked like Robin Hood extras, the revelation of the satanic cult. They should have called their master the Lord of Light, but okay, I guess that's a small killjoy on my part. All of that was good with me. Then it fell apart. 
The disappearance of the village was too sudden. The giant hammer of exposition at the end was far too rushed and clumsy. And right after I finished, I was left thinking, so these guys were sent to take the empty ruins of a village? When the cursed town went away, there was nothing else there. So what were they sent to take if Mannheim was just a ruin? So that all being said, the splash page is great. And the final silent panel on page four is really effective too. Also, the credits listing Alfred P. Alcala reminded me of Mad Magazine's Alfred E. Newman. So that was nice. Let's hope the next story is better. So Rich, is it? <laughs> Let's find out together. A time to die. Oh, that's not encouraging. Seven pages. Script by Jack Olick. Art by Ernie Chan, or Chua, depending on what last name is going with this month. Captain James Davis jerks awake from the hallucination he'd had, pleading with his dead crew in front of the wreckage of his downed plane. Doctors try to restrain him, explaining that he was in a London hospital and that his crew had died in the Libyan desert more than a year ago. Davis had been shot down and was found wandering in the desert. Soon after, he had a mental breakdown. Davis moans, I don't belong here. I belong with my men. They died because of me. I have to get back to them. Then falls into a coma. Davis's pulse is faint, and the doctors order adrenaline to keep him alive. Davis's mind had gone back to that fateful mission when a whole squadron of Messerschmitt fighters had swarmed the lone B-25. Every other member of the crew was wounded or trapped as the bomber caught fire, and Davis panicked. Ignoring his crew's pleas for help, he bailed out and instantly realized what he had done. Helpless under his parachute, he watched as his blazing plane plummeted to the ground and exploded. No one else escaped. A second of terror led to a year of regret. A year to relive the past and to make amends. The doctors knew Davis was killing himself with his desire to go back in time and struggle to save his life. Again, in Davis's hallucinations, he begs his dead crew to give him a second chance. And suddenly, he has it. Davis is back at the controls of his stricken bomber as BF-109s attack. But this time, instead of bailing out when the Mitchell catches fire, he stays at the controls and safely bellies the plane to the Libyan desert. Davis pulls his crew out of the wreckage safely before the plane explodes. But close by, a German patrol sees the plane crash and sets up an ambush. The wounded and dazed airmen have no chance and are gunned down. Davis is momentarily spared and furiously returns fire with his 45, striking the enemy gunner. But another burst cuts Davis down. Six men lie in the burning sands, together again for all time. At the end, Davis smiled. I made it back. This was how it was meant to be. Back at the London hospital, Davis died, and the doctors were puzzled. What was that he said about being back with his crew? Nah, hallucination, of course. A man can't be in two places at once. But as the orderlies arrived to take Davis's body away, a slipper fell off of one of his feet. One of the doctors picked it up. If a man can't be in two places at once, if Davis never left his bed, how is it his slipper is full of sand, he asks, as he pours the sand onto the floor. Killjoy. 
Page four, panel three, the B-25 is identified as a flying fortress. That would be a B-17. The B-25 was the Mitchell, named after General Billy Mitchell, an officer that made so much noise about the potential of air power, he ended up getting court-martialed. Events, obviously, proved him right, but he died before World War II began and never found out. Said B-25 has the horizontal stripe and the national insignia where it doesn't belong at this point in history. I also have to wonder what mission a B-25 is on all by itself, where it could be jumped by a squadron of enemy fighters. Also, page one, panel one, the B-25 has a serial number on its tail, 428145, the first two numbers of the year the plane was built, 1942 in this case. You all know me by now. I had to check. The number actually belonged to a P-47 Thunderbolt fighter that was shot down by a Japanese Zero over New Guinea. On October 22nd, 1943, the pilot bailed out but was killed. Page three, panel two, the bombardier is pinned by his bombsite and is asking the fleeing Davis for help. But there are enlisted stripes on his arm. The flight crew, navigator, and bombardier were always officers. And the bombardier is in the nose. He wouldn't be seeing the shadows of the bombs on the left side of the frame, which would be amidships. Comments and commendations. I'll be waiting for one of our dear listeners to compare this story to some Twilight Zone episode because there has to be one. This is a great story because all of us have things in our life that we would do differently if only given the chance. If we knew then what we know now, Bullock and Shan craft a great tale, but I still struggle at times with the colorists of this era, like the doctors wearing these odd purple-gray uniforms and the violet aircraft. My favorite panel is the first one of Davis pleading with his vindictive dead crew in front of his wrecked plane and the skeletal narrator introducing the story. Again, great story. I don't have any anything I would do differently in my history. I did everything perfectly. So possible. I've known this man a long time, ladies and gentlemen. I can tell you right now what an utter load of garbage that is. I tried to, I tried to just run on past that statement, but you wouldn't let me. So, Damn right. <laughs> I got to figure out how to, I know I can mute you against your will here. So um, just not agile enough to do that or anything else really. So possible Twilight Zone plagiarism be damned. This was a great captivating and cool comic book story. Even if this team was pilfering the plot, the way they adapted it to another medium here was excellently done. I particularly liked how Ernie Chan's art leaned in so hard on the melodrama. Every pose and every expression went big, like this was meant to be a stage production or a soap opera or both, and I loved it. Just look at every piece of the first page. The splash panel, as you mentioned, Davis's awakening, his struggle to get out of bed. It's all super broad and intense. You can almost hear the overly dramatic music playing behind each panel. The layouts are great throughout, too. I'll, I'll just point out page two, panel five, as perhaps the best example of using a pop-out panel for dramatic emphasis. Just great. The narrative structure was no slouch either. Starting off with the main point of action, one whole year in the past is an unusual choice and but leaning on and, and also leaning on not one but two flashbacks slash hallucinations to carry the rest of the story is a gamble to say the least but it all works perfectly here i kind of like this one so that, that one just that's huge for me i won't jump to my last words comments but i think you can guess so before we get to the last words or anything else we're going to swing on over to the apo weird war tales letters page 
I get first crack at this one. I'm going to go with the letter written by Glenn Puhak of the USS Halsey, FPO, San Francisco, California. Dear Joe, well, I've been waiting patiently for 21 issues of your fine comic, and I've yet to see a story about the Navy in Weird War. I'm pretty sure that there were some battles fought on the sea during at least one or two of the wars in history. Come on, guys. And Joe responds with, actually, we've been scared to do any Navy stories because we were afraid they'd pale by comparison to Sam Glansman's fine DDD-779 USS Stevens series, which runs in the many of DC's other war titles. But as our answer to Robert Lugo's letter stated, we're putting our best foot forward. Sink or swim, Lugo was in the letter prior to this. I mentioned in last episode's teaser about Joe Orlando's... uh, Glansman gaff. DDD 779. Wow. Okay. A, it's not DDD, it's DD. And perhaps most importantly, it's not 779. It is 479, was the USS Stevens. I just got to wonder about the conversation that Joe and Sam had about this. <laughs> You're trying to you're trying to give you know Sam all the honors that he is justly justly well deserved, and you botch. I mean, (laughs) Joe was typing real fast, and and you know from what I've heard about Sam through through uh, certain sources, I probably Sam just just laughed at him, gave him hell about it, you know. As long as you call it a sailor's story and not a soldier's story, that pissed him off. Yeah, I heard he wasn't pleased with that. Scroll, 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 scroll. Oh man! So I'm I'm actually going to spotlight the first letter at the top of the letter call here. It's from a Jeff Patton of Sandyville, Ohio. It starts out, "Dear Joe, the letter column in Weird War number 21 mentions originality." I felt that applied to number 21, which was for the most part a fine issue, but it can also apply in a negative way. I'll explain this later in the letter. Your lead story, One Hour to Kill, had it all. It was one of the best short stories I've ever read in any medium, bar none. Superb art by Frank Robbins, right on. The best I've ever seen by him. Fine story by Olek, loaded with conflict and suspense. I couldn't put it down. The ending had that old EC sick humor touch to it. Not satisfying so much as enjoyable, as the reader recalls a little touch about the gun. The idea of mixed emotions came across well, as the feelings of conflict and confusion that filled the captain seemed very real to me. The second story is another matter completely. It had filler written all over it. The art by Bailey was okay, but that was the best part. If comics had more than 20 pages of art and story, something more worthwhile could have been put there, and I'd still be yelling applause for the whole issue, not just part of it. Still, 14 out of 20, oh, I like the cover, so make that 15 out of 21, isn't too bad. I've read many good stories in Weird War since it was first published, enough to make Weird War Tales a permanent fixture on my buying list, but this one is the first that prompted me to write a letter to the editor. It's probably getting hard to produce outstanding stories, but I'm glad that you're trying. So Joe Orlando responds, whether a magazine is on a monthly schedule or an annual one, it's always hard to produce outstanding stories. Nonetheless, we think that we're succeeding in producing a substantial number for Weird War Tales. Now, the reason I picked that one is I just really dig it. I like to see the letters that are about the first story to inspire someone to write in, especially from someone who's been reading for a while. Like he's 
been reading Weird War Tales since the beginning. So the fact that it was our Frank Robbins drawn story where this one guy needs to go back in time and kill like Da Vinci inspired him to write in for the first time was just cool to me. I I like to see that in a letters column. So letters out of the way. We're going to jump in to this issue's spotlighted ads, and I'm going to kick it off here. So between pages five and six of that excellent final story, there's a house ad for the line of DC superstars that just hits you with how varied the company's offerings were at this time. There's superheroes, of course. You got Superman, Wonder Woman, Action Comics in the ad. Then you got Jungle Adventure with Rima, the jungle girl. Two horror anthologies, Witching Hour and Weird Mystery Tales, Supernatural Adventure, kind of straddling the line there between superheroes and horror with the Phantom Stranger, and Weird War Tales itself featuring this very issue's cover in the ad. You just needed a straight-up war comic and a Western title to show off just how deep the genre bench was at this awesome time in comics for DC. I mean, that, that ad just makes me feel it how dc and marvel just go yeah we got superheroes what else you want move on so that's my favorite ad in this one as also mentioned in last episode's teaser egregious ads in weird war tales number 19 although i didn't select it as my featured ad i groused how dc had a lot of temerity to place a full page cleveland institute of electronics ad that had to be cut out and mailed opposite a story page Well, they freaking up their game this issue by placing the same ad opposite the front damn cover. Are you serious? And that is an awesome cover. This postage-free coupon can change your life by destroying a comic book. No, no, thousand times no. And actually, I missed it when they pulled this exact same stunt on the inside back cover of issue 23. What in the hell (laughs) yeah they just weren't thinking of these things as collectibles back then they were just like whatever it's a comic book cover half the time these things were ripped off and mailed back as proof of an unsold copy by newsrooms so they they did not care what happened to these physical objects as long as they were paid for at one time so but yeah considering that people do want to collect and keep these things uh that that habit Oh, it's more common than you'd think. It's just they, they didn't care, man. Ah, so with those ads aside, the issue has come to an end, and we're going to take stock of it in our section we like to call, Got Any Last Words? SNL's church lady said it best. Could it be Satan? Two of the three stories here had that land down under vibe, if you know what I mean. Jump into hell was the dud of the issue for me. I went back and forth on the other two, but I think my interest in alternate history was what gave the survivor the win for me. There were a couple of ads I had my eye on. CIE had ticked me off. Solid, solid issue. As for me, uh, A Time to Die easily takes the lead here, even though I really enjoyed the survivor as well. There's just no getting over the charm, though, of the over-the-top presentation combined with the seamless execution of clever storytelling in A Time to Die for me. The middle story just irks me the more I think about it, so I won't think about it. The rest of the book more than makes up for any shortcomings that, as I just said, of that one story I'm no longer thinking about. So 
Uh, overall, what, 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 what? Yeah, exactly. I don't know what you're talking about. It's lost in the mists of time. So now that we've got this overall excellent issue out of the way, we're going to move on down to the dead letter office where we take a look at uh, what listeners have had to say about the show, giving us likes, shares and all that kind of stuff. And I'm just going to combine one section with another here because I'm a creative genius, but I always mention the Weird War Tales PX, you know, our Weird War Weird Wars podcast PX here, where you can go to redbubble.com and try to be the third person to buy any merch from us. Well, one of our listeners, Mike Stewart, co-host of the Save for Half podcast, uh, he wrote in to say he couldn't find coffee mugs on the PX, but both Rich and I have coffee mugs, so Redbubble's interface ain't that great. Keep searching, troops. We promise that you can slap our awesome logo on any damn thing that that site can manufacture. You just got to struggle through the horrible interface to get there. Oh, yeah. No, no lie. Because when I was shopping for my coffee mug, I was just, I was like 15 minutes looking for that. And I, kn- I know we had it. <laughs> Where the hell is it? It's like you have to keep reloading for the right object, the right, you know, T-shirt or whatever to appear for you to go, yes, that, that's what I want. So. <laughs> You know, eh, maybe we'll move on to another site at some point, but uh, I'm going to at least let Mike try to finish ordering his coffee mug first. So we're going to go on over to Twitter and people are are, uh, giving us likes and shares and all that kind of stuff for episode number 26, where we covered Weird War Tales number 23. So on Twitter, we got likes and stuff from Agent Antihero, Andrew McAvoy, Doc Strange, Billy Delicious there, Jurgen Roth who uh, is at Nature Fine Art and is a photographer and does some really cool work. Um, Relatively Geeky Podcast, Ed Moore, the Banff Podcast, that's B-A-M-F, like the Nightcrawler sound effect, unofficially. Martin Gray, Coffee and Comics, Dance Along the Edge, Luke Giaconetti, Wayne Burroughs, Bill at Spy Vinyl, and Etrigan, the Time Meddling Rage Demon. So, You have to end on that one. You know what I mean? And over on Facebook, we got some visits by Richard Field, Herschel Mimis, David Steele, Tim DeForest, Luke Ed, and Billy D, Billy Dunleavy. Now, over on Gmail. At first, I thought we'd just be talking about Mike's email about his frustration with the coffee mugs. But at the last second, Jason Zeller the founder and sole owner of the Jason Zeller Binge Listener Award, wrote in to discuss Weird War Tales number 23, mentioning that I finally beat him to a Twilight Zone reference in the day after Doomsday Story. But he also postulated that perhaps the last man on Earth in these tales is the same person in each installment, which, in my opinion, would almost make them interesting. He also lamented the lack of fart jokes in Corporal Kelly's private war, as do we all. As do we all. As do we all. (laughs) So with the dead letter office out of the way, we're going to let Rich hit you with the teaser for the next episode. Weird War Tales number 27. It's what you're here for. Time loops. Too old to fight. 1970s identity theft. Tune in. Or no dessert. You you don't get any pudding if you don't eat your meat. (laughs) So (laughs) we should also mention before we go that at the time of this recording, Neil Adams, comic book legend, has recently passed away. Rich and I both 
posted tributes to the man on our Facebook and Twitter pages, even though no mere social media post could possibly communicate the impact that Mr. Adams had on the comic, on the comic book medium or the very business of the comic book industry. So in Neil Adams' memory, we have been the Weird Warriors. We have been the Batlam Bros. This has been the Weird Warriors podcast, and we promise to make war. No more.